Father, thank You that we can open up Your Word right now. And God, we believe from the front end that it's all true. We believe from the front end, God, that it's all authoritative, God. This is Your Word. Your Word is our authority. And God, we believe from the front end, You, you said that You want to reveal Yourself to us through Your Word. And we want to see You, Lord, and we want to learn to trust You deeper, love You deeper. So help us, God, as we come to Your Word now. Work these things in our souls. I just pray, Holy Spirit, during this time, that You would work through me, Lord. And Holy Spirit, that You would work in every heart, that You would open the ears of Your people to hear Your Word. God, we just confess to You that this time is so vain if You don't come and do a work. So come, Lord. Let Your name be lifted higher and higher. Thank You, Lord. In Jesus' name, Amen. Alright, Mark chapter 11. So, most of you know this, but we have been coming through the Gospel of Mark section by section over the last several months, and we actually took a break, and then we just, last week, picked it back up in Mark chapter 11. So today we're at Mark chapter 11, verse 12 through 25. Um... Just kind of give you a heads up here. Uh, if, if I want to get this out of the way from the beginning. Uh, some of your Bibles, if you have a New King James or a King James or something like that, you'll be wondering why I'm not going Mark 11, chapter 11, verse 12 through 26. And if you're in the ESV, you won't know what I'm talking about because verse 26 is actually not there in the ESV and in some, in some of the other versions. Okay, so here's the deal. I'm going verses 12 through 25. We have... Uh, Greek, some of the Greek, older, ancient Greek manuscripts are a little bit different on whether or not that verse 26 is supposed to be there. The references and the verses have nothing to do with it because we added those uh, reference divisions later. Okay, so as I've dove into this, that verse that we call verse 26 is actually another place in the Bible, Matthew 6, I think, verse 14. And so, and so today, I don't, want you, I don't want that to get in your way. I just want to get that out of the way now. That we're going verse 12 through 25, it seems like. As you do a little study and looking at Greek manuscripts that the ESV got it right on this one. And so that's kind of the direction we're headed, okay? I just want to shove that out of the way, okay? If anybody's wondering. Okay, Mark chapter 11 through 16, it represents what a lot of people call Passion Week, okay? Chapters 11 through 16, this last part of Mark, it represents what a lot of people call Passion Week, okay? These are the last days before Jesus is crucified. I mean, this last week right here, there's a lot of time in the Bible devoted to this last week where G, right before Jesus is crucified. And the first 10 verses, Mark 11, verse 1 through 10, that Dustin taught on last week, this is how it tells us how Jesus rode into Jerusalem. This first time he's, he's or this, this is his coming in on the Passion Week just before he dies. He rides into Jerusalem on a donkey as king, and uh, in fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, and we got that last week in verses 1 through 10. When you get to verse 11, you're going to see Jesus. Going, he, he goes into Jerusalem. He gets into Jerusalem. Now, now this, is, this is the city of the Jews, okay? This is uh, the city of God's people. I mean, there are whole psalms that are devoted to this city. Uh, we, uh, Jerusalem, we will not forget you, this sort of thing, okay? This is a big deal. And Jesus goes straight into this holy city, Jerusalem. And He goes straight into the temple in verse 11. Straight into the temple. This is the central place of worship among God's people. And really at this time, the central place of worship in all the world. This is the, the temple here. You can literally 
take the temple throughout the scriptures and you trace out it being built and it being destroyed and being rebuilt and being destroyed. And you can have an outline of the Bible. The temple is a big deal. And Jesus is walking straight into Jerusalem on the, or he's riding into Jerusalem on this donkey straight into the temple. And that's what we see in verse 11. He gets into the temple in verse 11. If you remember Dustin talking about this, he looks around. He surveys what's going on in the temple. He surveys what's going on in Jerusalem. And, if he, and when he gets there, this place is packed, okay? Because this is actually the, the Passover feast is being celebrated during this week. So this place is absolutely packed. They say that it would swell to 10 times its normal size during this week. And so it's packed. People are in this temple. People come have come from all over. And he goes in and he surveys and looks at what's going on. And he doesn't like what he sees. He makes the assessment he doesn't like what he sees. Now, Jesus knew on his way in there that he wasn't going to like what he sees. If you read this similar account in Luke 19, you see in Luke 19, Jesus, as he's riding in, he actually pronounces a judgment on this city. He pronounces a judgment on this temple as he's going in. He knew he was going to get there and not like what he sees in Jerusalem and in the temple. And after he scopes out the city, after he scopes out the temple, Mark 11, 11 says that Jesus departed with his disciples about two miles to a place called Bethany, and there he stayed the night. So he stayed the night in Bethany. So you got Jesus. We're going to pick it up in verse 12. This is the next morning. He stayed the night in Bethany. And we're going to read verses 12 through 25 together. Read along with me. Understand the Word of God. Now the next day, when they had come out from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. In response, Jesus said to it, Let no one eat fruit from you ever again. And his disciples heard it. So they came to Jerusalem. Then Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. Then he taught, saying to them, it is, writ is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. And the scribes and the chief priests heard it, and sought how they might destroy him. For they feared him because all the people were astonished at his teaching. When evening had come, he went out of the city. Now in the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, remembering, said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered away. So Jesus answered and said to them, Have faith in God. For as surely I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things which he says will be done, <clears throat> he will have whatever he says. Therefore I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you will have them. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. Okay. So this section of Scripture, it covers from a morning to a morning, okay? So you got one morning, they go out of Bethany, into Jerusalem. Some things go down in, in Jerusalem where Jesus just cleans house pretty much. He comes back to Bethany. 
Next morning, he's headed back out to Jerusalem again. And that's what we have our time period in this verse is morning to morning in this, in this little section right here, okay? Now, this, it can mainly be broken up into three sections. You can mainly break, break up this section of Scripture into three sections. And here they are. One is the object lesson of the fig tree. Jesus gives an object lesson of this fig tree, and that's verses 12 through 14. Two, Jesus clearing out the temple with a holy rage against false religion. And that's found in verses 15 through 19. And then three, you see Jesus push his disciples toward faith-filled, mountain-moving uh, praying. And you see that in verses 20 through 25. So three sections to break it down. Okay, let's start with that first section. Let's begin. We're going to look at the object lesson of the fig tree found in verses 12 through 14. Before we even read it again, let me just kind of, let's think about this setting that's here, okay? Think about what's going on as they head out and Jesus curses this fig tree, okay? The day before, the day before he cursed this fig tree, we know that Jesus went into Jerusalem, right? We just said it. He went into the temple. He scoped out the things that were going on there and he did not like what he saw. Now, think about this temple. This is not just a, a little building. He didn't just walk into a little building. The area of courtyards and buildings that was called the temple is 30 plus acres, okay? It's a big area here and people are packed into it for this Passover feast. And he walked in there the day before and he did not like what he saw, okay? Now, what did he find there? What did he find there? He found false religion. When he got there, he found dead religion. He found hypocrisy when he got there. Okay, Now, how do we know that's what he found? Well, Because as we keep reading through our passages, when he finally gets into Jerusalem, what does he do? Oh, he cleans house and he brings the rebuke. He does not like what he saw that first day. He saw false religion. He saw hypocrisy. Jesus hates false religion. Hear me out on that. Jesus hates false false religion. There's a true and undefiled religion, but Jesus hates false religion. So what is false religion? Let's be clear. What is false religion? The idea of false religion is to have the outward forms of godliness and yet miss the heart of God. You've got the outward forms going on, doing the outward forms that are, that are there, but you miss the very heart of God. Okay, False religion is to go into the temple is to do the rituals, but miss worship and love for God. It's false religion. False religion, it looks real spiritual on the outside, but it's riddled with sin on the inside. It's false religion. Okay? And Jesus burned with a hatred towards false religion more than anything else it seems in the Scriptures. In Matthew 23, several times we see Him looking at um, uh, people of false religion and saying, hypocrites, hypocrites, hypocrites. Again and again, He said things like this. You cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. Or He spoke about it like this. You are like a whitewashed tomb which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Jesus hated to see His people walking in all the outward forms and yet missing the very heart of God, this false religion. Matthew 15, verse 7, we see Jesus look at a group of people and He says this, Hypocrites! These people draw near to Me with their mouth and yet their heart is far from Me. You see the false religion? Jesus hates. Now, 
When Jesus got into that temple that day, we're talking about the setting here. Just, you know, what's in Jesus' mind? What's in his heart as he heads out and curses this fig tree? He hates false religion. And the particular kind of false religion that he saw that day, I want you to think about what he saw there, okay? Just think about it with me. He saw mass droves of people coming into this temple, okay? And they're, they're, they're there and they're supposed to be there for what? To worship God. This is a house of prayer. They're supposed to be there to pray, to commune with God, to worship God, to remember the, the Passover lamb that was slaughtered as a substitute. And that's why they're supposed to be there. And yet, what does he find? He finds people doing business, even in a crooked way, buying and selling and trying to make a dollar. And this is what he finds when he gets there. And he, he hates false religion. He also sees this. I want you to think about this. This is particular to this situation. He gets there in that temple that day. And he sees people from all nations. Remember, they're, they're gathered in from all nations. We see this in John chapter 12. You've got the Greeks are there. Uh, Acts chapter 2, when, whenever, uh, whenever the, the Holy Spirit came down, like tongues of fire, you see people of all nations represented there. So you've got people from all nations gathered into this place, and Jesus sees that, okay? But instead of welcoming these people into communion with God, what you see is people of false religion trying to make money off of them. They're coming in with their sacrifices and they got to have a sacrifice to, to bring to the temple, right? And yet they're coming in selling off these sacrifices, skyrocketing the prices. This is what they're doing. This is false religion. Looks good on the outside. It's got the form, but it's missing the very heart of God. Now, essentially, this is what we have. What you think about this? Essentially, this is the setting. You've got this all nations, Zechariah 9-9 king coming in, riding on a donkey into Jerusalem. Now, why do I say he's the all nations king? Because in Zechariah 9 verse 10, right after Zechariah 9-9, the fulfillment, it says, He shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So here you've got this all nations king. Zechariah 9.9, 9, riding in on a donkey king. And he's coming in, and, and, and his, you think about it, his coming is an all-nations coming. This, this all-nations king's coming in, his, his coming's an all-nations coming. You see this all over the Bible. Uh, Abraham, he said, Abraham, in your seed, all the nations are going to be blessed from the very beginning of the Bible. This is an all-nations coming. He comes into an all-nations temple you see that in 1 Kings chapter 8 when the temple is first built and it's dedicated and you got Solomon standing there. And he's standing he's saying he's praying. He's saying, God, when the foreigners come in, when these Gentiles and these nations, it's 1 Kings 8.41, when they come in, hear their prayers, accept their sacrifices so that your name might be known in all the earth. So you got this all nations king. He's, his, he's got this all nations coming. And he's coming into this all nations temple. And all nations are gathered there at the Passover feast. And instead of taking these nations and, and welcoming them in and in communion with God, just like the heart of God. In fact, let me show you something. Go, hold your place and go to Isaiah. Isaiah 56. In just a minute, I want you to think about what God, what did Jesus see there that day that displeased him? What was the false religion? And in Isaiah 56, verse 7, we have a verse that Jesus is actually going to quote when He rebukes them in just a minute. My house should be called a house of prayer for all nations. 
Well, if you look at the context around that verse, listen to God's heart toward the nations. Isaiah 56, 3, listen. Do not let the son of the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord speak saying, the Lord has utterly separated me from his people. So God says, hey, that foreigner, that the nation, the Gentiles that are not part of this Jewish people, do not let them say, the Lord has utterly separated me from his people. God said, don't let them say that. Look at verse 6. Also the sons of the foreigner. So here's these foreigners, these nations. Also the sons of, of the foreigner who join themselves to the Lord to serve him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants. Everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds fast my, my covenant, even them I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. What's God's heart toward the nation? He says, these foreigners, these nations, bring them in. My house is a house of prayer. Keep going. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. So here you see the heart of God. You got these nations flowing in. All nations king comes in. And the heart of God is bring them into my holy mountain. Bring them in and accept their offerings. And what do you see these people doing? Making money off of them. It's all about buying and selling and making money. Skyrocket the prices of those lambs. Get these nations to buy them and we'll make a book. See, this is false religion. It has the form, but it misses the heart of God, especially toward the nations, okay? So here's what happens. Here's what happens. This is the setting, okay? This is what Jesus saw in the temple that day. And then like we just read in verse 12, He heads out of Bethany, okay? He, he, he saw that in the temple, Went back to Bethany for a time. Slept on it. He's heading out of Bethany, heading back toward Jerusalem. And this is when he sees this fig tree. This is what's bowling in his heart and in his mind. He hates false religion. And he sees this fig tree. Okay, look, let's read verse 12 again. Mark, back in Mark 11. Verse 12 through 14. Now the next day, when they had come from Bethany, when they had come out from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. In response, Jesus said to it, let no one eat fruit from you ever again. And his disciples heard it. So what's the plain sense here? Plain sense of this passage. Jesus is coming out of Bethany, about two miles away from Jerusalem. It's about a 30 minute walk. He's coming, he's coming out of Bethany. He's heading in. He's hungry. And he sees this fig tree with leaves, this beautiful fig tree. The fig tree could get up to 20 feet high, big, you know, bushy, beautiful tree. Uh, in John 1, you see Nathaniel actually taking shade under one of these trees. You get shade under one of these fig trees. And Jesus sees one of them from afar off. And he sees this tree, and he begins to walk toward it as a hungry man. And he gets to it, and what does he find? Nothing. No fruit. He finds no fruit on this tree. So Jesus rears up and He curses. Peter called this in verse 21. He actually is going to call it cursing. He curses this tree. And all the disciples hear it. Now that's the plain sense, but what's the meaning? Why did Jesus, He's fuming over this false religion going on in Jerusalem, and He heads toward Jerusalem, and why does He curse this fig tree? What is the meaning? And I just want to tell you this. This is not a random occurrence. 
There's a lesson that Jesus, there's an object lesson Jesus is teaching here. This actually has meaning, okay? And let me give you five reasons why this is not random, but this actually has meaning. Five reasons. Reason number one, simply because Mark recorded it. If this story didn't have reason, okay, if it didn't have meaning, excuse me, if this story didn't have some sort of meaning, some, some sort of symbol, it would be really odd for Mark to record this. He's recording the last days of Jesus before he's crucified. Oh, let me tell you this little random story about the fig tree that he got mad at. Does that seem random? It, it has meaning, okay? Simply the fact that Mark recorded tells us it has meaning. Also, how do I know it had meaning? Because Jesus knew there were no figs on that fig tree before he ever got there. This is the same Jesus who just earlier, we just heard about this last week, you read it in verses 1 through 10. He just looked at his disciples and said, hey, go, get, go into this next town and go get a colt. By the way, no one's ever ridden on it before. By the way, if somebody says something to you about it, just tell them the Lord has need of it and, and just bring it. How did Jesus know all that? And that's the one that we're talking about, okay? So, so he knew there were no figs on that tree before he got there. Not to mention our verse just said, verse 13, it was not the season for figs. Simple enough, right? It's not the season for figs. He knew there were no figs on the fig tree. Jesus set the seasons in motion at the very beginning. And He sustains the seasons by the word of His power. And the one that creates seasons does not forget what season it is. It wasn't the season for figs. He knew there wouldn't be figs on that tree. He has an object lesson in mind. Reason number three. Jesus is not normally a person to yell at a tree in frustration. This has a meaning. You get what I'm saying? Reason number four. His disciples heard it. Verse 14, Mark goes out of his way at the very, the very last sentence to say, and his disciples heard it. He did this in the hearing of his disciples. He did this in the sight of his disciples. He's trying to teach them a lesson. This has meaning. This is an object lesson. And reason number five, we actually see the lesson, or actually two lessons, we see it unfold as we continue to read through the rest of this little passage of Scripture, okay? So what is the meaning of Jesus cursing the fig tree? What's the lesson here? What is the lesson? And here's what I want to tell you. Jesus uses this hypocritical fig tree. What do I mean by hypocritical fig tree? It's showing its beautiful display of leaves, but it has no fruit. And Jesus uses hypocritical fig tree to represent the hypocrisy that he saw that day in Jerusalem and the hypocrisy that he's about to walk into Jerusalem and curse and bring it down. He uses this fig tree for this. Now notice, how do I know that? Notice how the fig tree story is wrapped around the story of Jesus walking into the temple and cleaning house. It tells us that he cursed the fig tree and then we get him going into Jerusalem and then the next story we get is Peter going, it withered up and died, Jesus. And he begins to teach him a lesson here, okay? So it's wrapped around. So, that, so, so number one, it's, what's, the, what's the meaning of the cursing of the fig tree? It's symbolic, okay, of, of this hypocritical fig tree that shows the, the leaves and yet it has no fruit. Just like Jerusalem, just like in that temple, they're showing the leaves of religion. And yet they miss the very heart of God. The fruit's not there. Think about it with the nations. You, you got Jesus. Jesus sees this, 
This fig tree from afar off, he sees the leaves, he gets close, nothing. And he sees Jerusalem. The nations see Jerusalem. And they've got the leaves of religion there. And yet nothing, no nourishment, no real fruit whenever he gets there. This is the picture. So that's number one. What's the meaning of the fig tree? It's symbolic for what he's about to do. Number two, Jesus is actually going to use this power display. We're going to see this uh, in verses 20 through 25, the next day. Jesus is going to use this power display of him speaking a sentence and withering a fig tree. He's going to use that to teach his disciples to pray mountain-moving, faith-filled prayers. Okay, so you have these lessons that Jesus is going to teach from the fig tree. Okay, so don't miss it. The symbolism of the fig tree. Don't miss it. Jesus sees the leaves. These, the leaves are saying, I have fruit, come get fruit. And yet there's no fruit when he gets there. And it's the same thing going on in Jerusalem. Same thing going on in that temple. Okay, now let's look at the second section here. Okay, verses 15 through 19. Read verse 15 through 19 with me. Listen. So they came to Jerusalem. Then Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. I told Hunter I was teaching this. He said, that sounds fun to teach. It does look fun. Jesus is mad. Verse 17. Then he taught saying to them, is it not written my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. And the scribes and the chief priests heard it and sought how they might destroy him, for they feared him because all the people were astonished at his teaching. When evening had come, he went out of the city. Now, I want to answer three questions about this, this section, okay? Three questions. Question number one is, what did Jesus do? Question number two, what did Jesus teach? And question number three, how did the religious, the false religion people respond? How did the people of false religion respond? Respond. Okay, let's go with that first question. What did Jesus do? You see it in verse 15 and 16. Jesus walks into the outer courts of this temple. Now, this is big. This is where all the buying and selling is going down. This has been 10 plus acres in the, in the outer courts here. And he walks into the outer courts of the temple. It's packed with multitudes of people. And what's supposed to be happening there is what? Worship. Prayer to God, remembering that lamb that was slain, that Passover lamb. This is what's supposed to be going on there. And yet, what does he see happening? Buying, selling, money exchange, business, crooked business. And so Jesus, with righteous anger in his bones, righteous anger in his bones, he begins to tell the buyers and sellers to get out. In fact, he kicks them out. He throws them out. And then he's not done there. He goes to the money changer's table and flips it over. Money's flying everywhere. Then he goes to the seats of those who are selling and he kicks their seats over. This is pretty intense. People are trying to carry uh, merchandise through the temple and he won't let them do it. He's defending this 10 acres of land. This is a pretty amazing thing. This is the holy zeal holy passion, holy anger of Jesus Christ towards false religion. And this is what I want you to see. This is not a sudden outburst of anger. Jesus doesn't just have a temper tantrum, have a sudden bout. In fact, you remember verse 11 says what? He went in Jerusalem, saw this stuff going down. He actually had a night to sleep on it. You read the account in John chapter 2, whenever Jesus did this at the beginning of his ministry. He actually sees what's going down. He takes time 
to make a whip of cords. <laughs> then he drives them out. This is not just a sudden outburst of anger. This is a deep-rooted, well-thought-out, holy anger from Jesus towards false religion. He walks in when you read it in John 2 and he says this, Take these things away. Do not make my Father's house a house of merchandise. And that same section of Scripture calls this zeal. Zeal for God. Zeal for the Father's house is eating me up is what the Scripture says. The zeal of Jesus towards false religion. Now, I hope you have a place for this and your thoughts about Jesus. I hope you have a place for this edgy indignation of Jesus toward these things. As you grow in a relationship with Christ, I want you to make sure that you see that Jesus is not just nice guy Ned Flanders. That's not who He is. He has a holy fury, indignation toward unrighteousness. He hates it. This is Jesus. I hope you have a place for this because you too, you too are called to this sort of anger and hatred towards sin, towards unrighteousness. Psalm 97 verse 10 says, You who love the Lord hate evil. When we think about Christ's likeness, nobody ever thinks about this part. We never think about Christ, the one who, yes, He loves righteousness, but He hates evil. He hates sin. And He hates this false religion. As you're conformed to the image of Jesus, you will realize that it is unchristian, unchristian to be indifferent towards wickedness, to be indifferent towards especially this false religion. Amos 5.15 says this, hate evil. Hate evil. Amos 5.15. Think about it. Is there anything in your life that you should hate much more than you do? Is there anything in this world False religion in this world, injustice in this world that you ought to hate way more than you do. And here you see it in Christ. He hates it. And just, we see that He's not indifferent, but He burns with anger over false religion. Now, this is what He did, okay? So He goes in, He cleans house, and then what does Jesus teach? What does He teach? Mark eleven seventeen. 17, it says, Then He taught. Can you imagine the passion and the zeal behind those sermons? He just cleared house, just, just clean house in, in the temple. And now he begins to teach. And what we get is just a small snippet. Because as you read this section, you realize that Jesus has been there all day. From morning to evening, Jesus is in this place. But we get a small sip, snippet of what Jesus taught. And we get two Old Testament verses that Jesus referred to in his teaching. We know that he's rebuking them. We see that in verse 17. Is it not written, my house should be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves? And he referenced two Old Testament verses. First Old Testament verse he references is Isaiah 56 verse 7, which says, my house should be called a house of prayer for all nations. And the second verse he references is, is where it says, den of thieves. And that comes from Jeremiah 7, 11, den of thieves. Now, I've already pointed this out to you. That when you read, what is Jesus getting at? When He says, my house should be a house of prayer for all nations, He's pointing them back to that context we just read around Isaiah 56, where we see that God has His heart for the nations, and these people had the outward form, but they missed the heart of God. Okay? We see that. But now I want to point you to Jeremiah chapter 7. Okay? And you can flip with it there with me if you like. Jeremiah chapter 7. What is He getting at? Verse 11 is where it says the phrase, den of thieves. 
But here's what I want you to see. Try to see the picture that Jesus is painting in Jeremiah chapter 7, even verse 1 through 11. We won't read it all, but look at verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Excuse me, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house. So Jeremiah, get in that house. Get in the gate of the Lord's house. Get in that temple. And proclaim there this word. And say, hear the word of the Lord, all you of Judah who enter in at these gates to worship the Lord. So Jeremiah is speaking to these people coming to this temple. He's speaking to them. Verse 3. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your doings, and I will cause you to dwell in this place. Do not trust in these lying words saying, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. He's pushing them against this false religion. He says, don't believe these lying words saying, look at these outward forms, the temple of God, the temple of God. He says, amend your ways, correct your ways, change your ways and your doing. He's getting up under this false religion. Verse 5, for if you thoroughly amend your ways and your doings, if you thoroughly execute judgment between a man and his neighbor, if you do not oppress the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, or walk after other gods to your hurt, then I will cause you to dwell in this place. And what he's saying, what's he saying? You're coming into this temple to worship me. Sure. You've got the outward form. But go relieve the fatherless and the widow. Go help. Go amend your ways and your doings. Go serve me. He's pushing them away from this false religion. Verse 8. Behold, you trust in lying words that cannot profit. Will you steal? Will you steal and murder? Commit adultery? Swear falsely? Burn incense to Baal and walk after other gods whom you do not know? And then come and stand before me in this house which is called by my name? And say we are delivered to do all these abominations. Saved to do sin. I'm saved to go do sin. Verse 11. Has this house which is called by my name become a den of thieves? So you see what Jesus is pressing on. Again, He's pressing on this thing that He hates, His false religion of doing the outward forms. The temple, the temple, the temple. Here's the outward forms that we do. But as far as service to God goes and missing the very heart of God for the fatherless, or missing the, the heart of God and walking in this rampant sin while you do this temple worship, he hates it and he says it turns the house of God into a den of thieves. A den of thieves. Now, how did these religious people respond? And you can find that in verse 18. And the scribes and the chief priests heard it and saw how they might destroy him, for they feared him because all the people were astonished at his teaching. So here's the leadership there. These, these people of false religion, and man, they're mad. Man, they're offended. And why are they offended? They're probably the ones doing the selling. And at the very least, they led this out. Okay? And they're offended. And they're angry. And, they're, and the, the people are beginning to listen to His teaching. And they want to be seen as the teacher. This is, this is coming up against their spiritual leadership. And they don't like it. And they seek how to destroy Jesus. Verse 19, And when evening had come, so Jesus had been there all day, He went out of the city. So Jesus heads back into Bethany. Now, last section, verse 20 through 25, this last section right here, okay? This is going to pull us up to the next morning. The next morning, verse, verse 20, let's just go ahead and read it again. Verse 20 through 25. Now, in the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. So they saw that fig tree, the one that Jesus had cursed the day before. 
And Peter, remembering, said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you curse is withered away. So Jesus answered and said to them, Have faith in God, for surely I say to you, whoever says this mountain be removed and be cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart but believes those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. Therefore I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you will have them. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. All right, so here's what you have. Next morning, they're headed back into Jerusalem now. From Bethany, Peter notices something amazing. That fig tree, that beautiful leafy fig tree is withered up and dead. That one that you could have sat under yesterday and and got good shade. And today it's withered from the roots. And it's amazing to him. And Peter actually sounds surprised. He says, Rabbi, look, it's withered. He sounds surprised that this happened. The account over in Matthew, it says this. It says that he said, How did the fig tree wither away so soon? This is amazing. I saw this fig tree, beautiful and leafy, and now it's dead. And you just said one sentence. What's going on? He sounds surprised. Do you see his surprise? Here's what I want to tell you. This would have been an amazing sight, no doubt, right? This would have been a very amazing sight. But should they really be this surprised? Should they really be this surprised? They've seen Jesus stop storms. Heal lepers, heal the sick, cast out demons, raise the dead. And should they really be surprised that Jesus can kill a fig tree with a sentence? Should they be this surprised? And does Peter's reaction show a lack of faith? Does it show a lack of faith? He says, how did this happen? How does something like this happen, Jesus? That, I, that you spoke to this thing and it just died. How does this happen? Do you see the surprise? You see the lack of faith? And the next thing Jesus says in verse 22 is what? Have faith in God. Jesus is going to use this this display of His power to move His people to have faith in God. He's about to turn the corner. Look at His people. He says, yeah, I know you saw what just happened, but I'm telling you, have faith in God. And He's going to teach them some lessons about prayer and about faith, okay? Now, the first thing Jesus says, have faith in God. What does He mean? It means trust God. Have confidence in God. There's nothing that He can't do, so trust Him. Trust this God. It's what He pushes them toward. And I say this, oh, that we were a people of faith. Okay? Oh, oh, that we were a people full of faith. There, there was a group of people who Jesus did not do many mighty works among them. Why? Because of their unbelief. Oh, that we were a people full of faith. Full of faith. In just a minute, Jesus is going to apply this, and He's going to say those people that are full of faith are mountain movers. Oh, that we would be people full of faith. Now, here's what I want to highlight. Have faith in God. I want to highlight the word God. So often, have faith in God. We highlight the word faith and we zero in on that word faith and what we need to do. And this just said, trust God. Have faith in God. So I want to highlight this word God. Okay? Faith. Now, when we hear this command, when we hear have faith in God, We should take a moment, just a moment, but we should take a moment and do self-examination. Where am I at in this? The command is have faith in God. Where am I at in this? Is my faith weak? Am I standing confidently on the promises of God and seeing them fulfilled? What promises are you standing on? What promises are you standing on with confidence and trust in God and seeing them fulfill those promises in your life? Have faith in God. And for a moment, we do self-examination. But listen, 
I want to focus in on the word God. Because after this time of self-examination, you need to look away from yourself to the one who is worthy of all your trust. Have faith in God. Look away from yourself. Ultimately, you don't keep zoning in on your own weak faith, but you look away to the one who is glorious and he's worthy of your faith. Do you understand what I'm saying? So you hear the command, have faith in God. And the next thing that you need to do after this self-examination is you begin to think on God, who this God is. Have faith in God. What God? Who is He? Who is this God? He's the one who forms mountains and creates the wind. He treads the heavens. Who is this God? The one that laid the foundations of the earth. The one that stretched out the heavens like a curtain. This God, He says, have faith in God. Have faith in God who spoke into existence innumerable amounts of angels. And they all bow down to Him. And they do His Word, heeding the voice of His Word. Have faith in God. You can trust this one. Have faith in the God of Israel who delivered them from Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm who split the Red Sea for faithless people and drowned their enemies who fed over a million hungry mouths get this daily for 40 years with manna from heaven. You can trust this God. Have faith in God. Have faith in the God of Joshua who, who stopped the river Jordan when the priests obediently put their feet in the water. The, the one who, the, the God of Joshua who, who tore down the walls of Jericho when the armies obeyed and blew those trumpets. Have faith in God. Have faith in the God of Gideon who routed thousands through this measly little army of 300 men just so he would get glory. Any amens on this? Have faith in God. Have faith in the God of David who used a weak little man to slay a massive giant. Have faith in the God of Elijah who poured out fire from heaven on Elijah's sacrifice just to shame the prophets of Baal. Have faith in God, the God of Elijah, who heard Elijah's prayers and he stopped the rain for three years. By the way, he's got the same nature as you. We've got the same nature as this Elijah. And he heard his prayers. Have faith in God. Trust in this God. Have faith in the God of the valleys. The God of the valleys. This is the God that said this. He said this. He said, because those Syrians said, I'm not a God of the valleys, therefore, I'm going to deliver you right in the midst of the valleys. I'm going to whoop them in the valleys. He's the God of the valleys. Have faith in the God of Hezekiah. When Hezekiah's prayer went up, God sent an angel by night and slaughtered 185,000 of his enemies at once. You can trust this God. Have faith in the God of Ezra who completely changed the heart of a wicked king named Cyrus. Why? Because the king's heart's in the hand of the Lord. And like the river of water, he turns it wherever he pleases. Have faith in God. You can trust this God. Have faith in the God of, of Job. Remember, Job was complaining. Job was complaining, bringing his complaints to the Lord. He, was, he, was, he didn't know how to think about what was going on around him. And what does God say to Job? He says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? He says, where were you when I said to the oceans, this far you may come, but no farther. And here your proud waves must stop. Have you commanded the sun to rise since your days began? Have you walked into the depths of the seas? Who burst the rain? And to whom does the lightning bolt say, where should I strike? 
Can you loosen the belt of Orion? Have you an arm like God? Can you thunder with a voice like His? And if you can, adorn yourself with majesty and splendor. Have faith in God. This God. Have faith in the Psalm 34 God who, listen, He hears us. I sought the Lord and He heard me and delivered me from all my fears. They looked to Him and were radiant and their faces were not ashamed. This poor man cried out and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. Have faith in the Psalm 37 God who holds us. Though He falls, He will not be utterly cast down because the Lord upholds Him with His hands. Have faith in the Psalm 46 God who helps us. God is our refuge and our strength and a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear even though the earth be removed and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea. Have faith in the God of Daniel who shut the mouth of lions. Have faith in the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who stood with them in the fiery furnace so that even their clothes were not burned. Have faith in God. This is the God of protection. He breaks the fangs of the wicked and He plucks the victim from His teeth. This is the God that in the end, He's going to rain down holy fire on Satan and all His armies because He's messing with His bride. Have faith in God. Have faith in the God of mercy who has given life and breath and all things to us even when we were His enemies. Have faith in the God of love. The God of love that sent His Son into the world to take your sin onto His back and come under your punishment and die for your sins. Have faith in this God. You can trust Him. Have faith in the One who walks on water, who makes the blind see, who makes the deaf to hear, who feeds thousands with just a few crackers, who has compassion on the lowly and the needy and the hurting and those who have burdens and He has compassion on them. Have faith in this God. Have faith in God, the Savior, the King, Jesus, who with one simple sentence says this, let no one eat fruit from you ever again, and the fig tree withers and dies. And God looks, and Jesus looks at him and says, have faith in God. You could trust Him. Right after this push of Jesus saying, have faith in God, Verse 23 and 24. I want you to think about it. He looks at him. Just, just, let's just read verse 24. Therefore I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you will have them. Now usually when this verse is read, right in behind it comes the uh, here's what that don't mean explanation. That's usually what happens. Okay, And that's okay. Because there's been much abuse over the years from different people on this verse. Word of faith movement. Uh, uh, taking this name and claim it. It'll be yours. This sort of thing. So that's okay. That's legit. But the problem is this. We do not just want to be experts in what something doesn't mean. We want to know what's it mean. What do we do with it? So very quickly, I'm going to mention what it don't mean. And then we'll dig into what it do mean. What is it? What it here's what it doesn't mean. Okay. Some may think from reading this that if you don't receive a positive answer to your prayers, if you, you know you read verse 24, if you don't receive a positive answer to your prayers, the reason is automatically a lack of faith. Automatically. That's what some people might think from reading that verse and some uh, rip it from what it really means. Okay. Now, that's not true. Okay. 
There are different reasons in the Bible given for the reason prayers are not sometimes positively answered. And here's what I mean. You've got James 4.3 speaks of selfishness. You ask and you do not receive because you ask amiss to spend it on your own pleasures. Or relationship issues. 1 Peter 3.7 says, if I'm not honoring my wife, then my prayers are actually hindered. In fact, that's the same thing in verse 25 in the section we're on. There's this issue of unforgiveness in your heart towards somebody and there's a hindrance in prayer. Or maybe what you're asking from God is just, maybe it's just not His will. 1 John 5 verse 14 and 15 says, this is the confidence we have in Him that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if He hears us, we know we have the things that we asked of Him. So there's times where it's just not according to His will. For God to not positively answer your prayer sometimes is an act of love. I mean, even Garth Brooks gets that. (laughs) Ask a friend if you don't know what Garth Brooks is. (laughs) Ask a friend. Not now. So listen. Listen to me. This does not mean tell God to give you a car and tell yourself you're going to get a car and believe you're going to get a car and you'll have a car. That's not what this means. Okay, That's not what we're talking about here. But, I don't want to just say this is what it does not mean, but what does this mean? I'm going to read it again. I say to you, verse 24, I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you will have them. What does it mean? The practical push. Just think about it. What does it mean? The practical push from Jesus is ask God for things in prayer and have confidence in Him that He'll do it, that, he'll, that, he'll, that He will answer your prayers. Ask God things in prayer and have confidence, have faith in this God we just described. And then, there, then there's this promise. Look at the promise connected to asking in faith. The promise is, and you will have them. How awesome is that? The God I just described to you. Go and ask Him in prayer. And believe that you have those things you ask and you will have them. Oh, that we would be a praying people. Oh, that we would be a, a, a faith-filled people. Now think, think with me for a minute about the way Jesus uh, analogizes that verse 24. Okay, The truth in verse 24 is pray in faith and you have the things that you ask. Now how does Jesus analogize that? And you see it in verse 23. Look at it. For assuredly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and cast in the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. Now what can we learn from that? In regards to prayer and faith, what can we learn from that? Bring big requests to God. I mean, bring big requests to God. Jesus just withered a fig tree with a word. Peter's surprised, and then he doesn't, he doesn't back up. Jesus says, you could tell a mountain... Pick up, drop into a sea. You got it. Bring big requests to God. Bring massive. Ask God to do impossible things. I think it was Dawson Trotman, I think, who said this. He asked a group of people. He said, what if right now in this moment God answered every single prayer you prayed last week? How much of the world would be impacted? You catch the weight of that? Pray big. Bring big things to God. Ephesians 3.20 says, Now to Him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we can ask or think. Will you pray to this God in faith? 
Matthew 7, 7, verse 7 says this, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Do you believe these words or do you not? Ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Bring big requests to God. This is the God that stopped the sun. I give this to you. This was in my reading this week. Joshua chapter 10, verse 12. You don't have to flip there. Joshua spoke to the Lord. Son, stand still to give him time to do God's will. And it says, so the sun stood still. Amazing. He stopped the sun. Verse 14. And there has been no day like that before it or after that the Lord heeded the voice of a man for the Lord fought for Israel. Man, David lined himself up to fight for Israel. You catching this picture? He lined himself up to fight into the purpose of God to to fight for Israel. And God fights for Israel. So he asked him, God, stop the sun. And he stops the sun. Now, it sounds like a rare occurrence. He said, this hasn't ever happened. Verse 14. This hasn't happened any day before or since. But, but, But what Jesus did is speak to the tree and the tree fell dead. And he didn't say, it's a rare occurrence. He said, have faith in God. You tell a mountain, be picked up, move and cast into a sea. Do you see this? Oh, that we be a praying people. A people of faith in God, bringing big requests to Him. John Newton said this, You are coming to a king. Large petitions with thee bring. For His grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much. Last verse, verse 25. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, that your Father in heaven may also forgive your trespasses. Now, I've already mentioned that there's different ways for your prayers to be ill-affected, okay? And this is one of them. It's, it's unforgiveness. Unforgiveness negatively impacting your prayers. Unforgiveness, meaning, meaning somebody's done you a certain way or you got some kind of thought about somebody and there's something on the inside, you don't like it and you hold a grudge. You don't like, you got something against someone is the way it says it right here. It's unforgiveness. You got something against someone and it's on the inside. And what's he say right here, okay? Uh, think about this. How can, let me see if I can explain this. How can your unforgiveness negatively affect your prayers? Well, he just said in the verse, forgive that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. And that affects your prayer life. In fact, I'm here to tell you, it's in the context of when you stand praying. So this is talking about a hiccup in your connection with prayer so that your Father in heaven may also forgive your trespasses. Now, here's what it obviously does not mean. Obviously, this does not mean that your sins will be eternally forgiven if you're just a forgiving person. If you believe that, you don't read the Bible. Okay, that's just not true. The picture here is this. You've got something against somebody and you hold this grudge. And because of this, he still called your father here. You see that? Your father. Your father in heaven might forgive you. So you had this grudge out this way and there's immediately this prayer being hindered here. And he says, deal with it here so that this will be dealt with here. Do you see this? For example, with a husband and a wife, a husband, 1 Peter 3, 7, and not honoring his wife, says that your prayers may be hindered. This is the picture of so that your Father in heaven might forgive you your trespasses. Okay? So this thing that he has, you got something against somebody else, so he's got something against you, and this thing gets dealt with by you dealing with it this way. Do you see this? There's a breach there in your prayers. Now, get personal with that. Get personal with it. 
Bad relations with your brother and sisters at Grace Community Church, this includes spouse to spouse, people to people, can hinder your prayers. That's a big deal. There's many, okay, there are many, many reasons in the Scriptures why you should not harbor unforgiveness in your heart towards people. Many reasons. This one is huge. It can, it's, it's messing with this community. It's messing with this connection. Not an eternal connection. Not that you're not counted righteous. Nothing like that. But it's a hindrance to your prayers. That's a big deal. Okay, the verse said, verse 25, whenever you stand praying, you want to be able to go to God without hindrance, with, to, to pray faith-filled, uh, mountain-moving prayers. You want to be able to do that. But if you have anything against anyone, there's a hindrance there. Here's the picture. Matthew 5, 23 says this. It says, when you bring your gift to the altar, and there you remember that somebody's, you've offended somebody, or somebody's got something against you, there's a rift. Leave your gift there on the altar. Go reconcile with your brother. Then come back and, and offer your gift. This is a big deal, okay? How important, if that's the case, how important is our love and our forgiveness and our concern for one another, our forgiveness with one another, okay? Now, you might feel like if you just, if this rift is there and you get a little distance, you just kind of stay away. That feels better to you, but that does not fix the rift here. See that? This is a big, big deal, okay? Now, is this just random advice? Is this just random advice attached on to the end of this have faith in God, mountain moving prayers? Is it just random? And I want you to see that it's not just random. See the picture here. Jesus has just walked into this place called the temple. He calls it the house of prayer. He's just by his analogy of the fig tree, by his actions, and even by his words in Luke 19, he has just pronounced on this place judgment and destruction. It's going down. The house of prayer of the Old Testament is going down. And then he turns and he looks at his people, his church, his new Ephesians 2.21 temple, in whom the building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. The church is a new house of prayer. His people is the new house of prayer. And Jesus says this to him. He says, he says here's this house of prayer. This united, forgive one another, no rift in between us, going out, calling out to God, praying mountain-moving prayers for His glory. This is the picture. So Grace Community Church, so get, so get personal. GCC, you're a house of prayer. Let us be a community of people marked, a community of people marked by prayer, marked by faith-filled, mountain-moving prayer. Prayer everywhere, corporate prayer, personal prayer, prayer in our homes, prayer in the mornings, special times of prayer, prayer all the time. And these things will be hindered if you harbor unforgiveness toward one another. I think, I think it was MacArthur said it like this. He said, here's your choice. Hold a grudge or have your prayers answered. But you can't have both. Very quick application. Quick application of this. The main thing I want to tell you, and this is just a weigh yourself time, okay? Weigh yourself. We've got this passage in front of us from the Bible. Weigh yourself. And here's what I want to tell you. Beware of false religion. Oh, it's sneaky. Beware of false religion. It is very, very tricky, okay? Now, there's, there's a kind of false religion that leads people to eternal hell. You know that, right? So I don't know everybody in this room. There is a false religion, and it's rampant in our culture, 
that actually leads people to hell. You need to ask yourself this question. What does it look like to forsake God? What does it look like? If you wrote it down, what does it look like to forsake God? And most people have thoughts, you know, atheists, I say I don't believe God, whatever. It's just, it's just very extreme thing. But the picture that Jesus walked into in that temple was a people that still say there's a God, a people that still go to worship in that temple. What does it look like to forsake God? So let me speak to you here. If, if it's false religion that can actually lead you to eternity in hell, beware this. Proverbs 14, 12 says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but the end it leads is to death. It leads to death. It see, do you realize that? There's ways. If you're here, maybe, maybe you think, maybe I'm talking to you, and you say, I, there's ways that can seem right to you, and it be false religion that leads you to eternity in hell. Beware of this. Weigh yourself. Well, what about false religion just in the church? In the church, you, you who are saved, born again, what does it look like to let this stuff creep in? It's what happened in Revelation 31. Remember that? He said, you have a name that you're alive, but you're actually dead. So what he said to the church in Revelation chapter 3, verse 1. There's a way that you can have an outward form and yet miss God's heart. And when you have the outward forms and yet you miss the heart of God, you will always turn a house of prayer for all nations, worship, and mission, and you'll turn it into a den of thieves. Every time. So church, beware of false religion. You, if you're here, if you're part of the church, you bear the outward signs, okay? Nothing wrong with them. Nothing wrong in itself of going to the temple, right? But you do. You bear the outward signs. So, so either it's true religion or it's false religion creeping in. What is it? You who are the church. False religion or true religion? What is it? Okay, you have to think about it like this. Beware of false religion. Just taking this from our passage. That misses the heart of God for the nations and the mission. What does this look like? This looks like you have the outward forms, you do the outward forms, but you are totally detached from the mission. That, that is a sign that false religion is creeping in. Beware of the false religion that is devoid of faith-filled, mountain-moving prayer. This means you have the outward forms, but you know nothing of communion with God in prayer. You know nothing of that. You're nothing of God here in your prayers. You do the, the public stuff that's out there, but that private prayer life, you don't know anything about that, okay? False religion is creeping in on you. It's creeping in on you. Beware of this. Beware of false religion that allows disunity to just fester. It just festers. No zeal, remember what he said in verse 25, forgiveness. No zeal to reconcile with brothers and sisters. Totally content to just separate. And if you do this, this is a sign of false religion. It's creeping in on you. It's all in our text here. And I want you to beware of these things. Now, this is the warning. The warning's laid out, okay? And then real quick, let me end on a note of an encouragement. Hebrews chapter 7. Note of encouragement for y'all and for our church. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 23 through 25. Verse 23. There were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. He says in the Old Testament, there's a priest, there's a priest, there's a priest, there's a priest, but they kept dying. That was the problem. But he, he's speaking to Jesus, but he, 
because He continues forever, He don't die, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, He is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. That one with a raging zeal and a passion for the house of God, He was eat up with zeal for the house of God. You're His house and He's your great high priest and He intercedes on your behalf continually. It's an encouragement. Let's pray. Father, thank You that we can open Your Word. God, I pray that You would cast false religion far from here. God, if there's anyone here who has false religion, God, that they've never been saved, they're headed toward hell, God, I pray to awaken them to it now. And God, if You are awakening them to it, I pray that You would give them a heart to turn to You, Lord Jesus. You love them and You died for them. And I pray You'd give them a heart to turn to You, God. And God, in this church, I pray that you protect us, Lord. Protect us, Lord, from all the ill effects of false religion. I pray, God, you give us a, a raging heart for the mission, heart for the nations, Lord. And I pray that you would make us a people that go to you, God, in confidence and prayer and see you move mountains. God, make us a people that cannot be content with strife among us. Please protect us, God, from the effects of false religion. We need you, Lord. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.